0: Thanks for tuning into the Excel Legal Podcast, an interview-based podcast for lawyers devoted to practice excellence and wellness tips. I'm your host, Shelly Appleby-Ostroff, legal talent development consultant, writing coach, and former practicing lawyer, and I'm so happy you're here. Today, I'm so excited to chat with Norm Bacall about law firm leadership. Norm founded the Toronto office of Heenan-Blakey, and as co-managing partner, Built the firm into an iconic Canadian and international firm. After the firm unraveled close to eight years ago, Norm wrote a fascinating bestseller entitled Breakdown The Inside Story of the Rise and Fall of Heenan Blakey. Welcome to the XL Legal Podcast, Norm.
1: Oh, well, hi, Shelley. Really happy to be here.
0: Well, thanks so much for being here. I remember that day when you know, news hit the streets that he and Blakey had, uh, had collapsed and dissolved. And word at the time was that this was the beginning of a trend that several other national firms weren't far behind, which obviously hasn't played out. So i just wondering sort of what your reaction is to that.
1: Many of the managing partners, particularly the big firms, were extraordinarily concerned that it wasn't going to happen to them as well, but it didn't. And that's, I suppose, the good news for, for the industry. And mm-hmm. flash flash forward eight years, and I think uh, particularly when you look at uh, COVID's impact on the industry, it's another situation where one might have predicted this may be it for, for law firms, and yet lawyers over the past two years have said it's the 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 legal legal business has never been better so uh, Mm -hmm. so, uh, and and never worry about uh, particularly what the media is predicting
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah but the media did play a role in from what I understand from your book um sort of the perception of what was going on at Heenan Blakey at the time that um it was experiencing some trouble near the end
1: Yes, uh, and one thing I've learned is uh, reality is completely unimportant. Now, all that matters in the world is perception. In mm-hmm. fact, I write about it in my book in, in terms of uh, how to deal with clients. But from a uh, from a media perspective, yes, I think journalists do their best to try and fill in the blanks between what they think they know and what they perceive to be happening. It's not always right. What uh, what I find uh, actually the most fascinating, having lived. The inside of that story very intimately, right up to the very last moment of the firm to watch what the journalists were portraying compared to what was actually happening. And we were, we were actually living on two different planets. In fact, one of those journalists af- after he wrote, uh, sorry, after I wrote breakdown, I was doing a book review and one of the, uh, it may have been one of the Globe and Mail journalists who attended uh, the book review, and and he came up to me afterwards and apologized. He said, "I ha- I had no idea how badly I'd gotten the story at the time." On the other hand, they, you know, they, they obviously they're they're doing their best based on what they have.
0: Yeah, so perhaps you can take us back and just give us a a, a brief description of what now with hindsight, um, and having written the book and having got so much uh, positive feedback and reaction on the book. Can you encapsulate what led to the demise of the firm?
1: It's interesting because when I was writing the book, writing the what and facing the what happened, particularly in the last year, took me about six months until I could force myself to actually look at it. But uh, lecturing uh, on on the subject for four or five years, particularly on university campuses afterward, really gave me a lot more perspective. in in terms of not so much what happened, but why it happened. And I I think I can summarize it fairly simple. And it it comes back to what I call sort of the the three C's of building a great organization. First, you need a cultural objective that's part of your strategy. And in our case, for many years, we built the firm pretty much out of nothing in Toronto and into uh, uh, one of the national powerhouses on the back of, a cultural imperative that uh people came first that ha- having fun was a priority and third particularly in toronto that as we built it uh, my motto was in recruiting was we will we will be building the firm that you dreamed of when you left law school in terms of what you thought practice of law was all about and which attracted lawyers of, of great quality uh, from all over the country and in fact, ultimately internationally. So that those were our objectives. The second one, this, the second C is communication. So it's, it, it's a function not only of who you say you are, but how you communicate it uh, on a daily basis and which is tied into the stories that you tell about yourselves, a, a bit of the mythology that you create for your tribe. And our tribe was called Heenan Blakey and pretty much everybody who worked there. Felt for all the time they worked there, except for the last year, uh, that they couldn't imagine working anywhere else. And the final C is uh, consistency, and that it's it's all very nice and well to say you're something. But unless your day to day activities and actions are consistent with who you say you are and with your communication, uh, as long as you're consistent, you'll be fine and your organization will thrive. And the moment you become Inconsistent, you breed unhappiness, resentment, and cynicism. So, if you look at the first 34 years of the firm, or thirty-nine years of the firm, compared to the last year, the final year, uh, there was a a change in leadership, a change in approach, combined with what I call the perfect storm, which was a situation in two thousand and thirteen where there was a an unprecedented drop in the legal market, just at the time we were doing this leadership changeover. So. In some respects, I feel bad for the new leaders because they weren't prepared for what they had to deal with. There there was a difference in approach in terms of how to deal with it between the two new leaders. And uh, general sentiment among the partners that, A, they were no longer happy, B, there didn't seem to be any consistency between what they bought into and what they were seeing going on on a daily basis. And as a result, uh, there was a slow but steady which turned into a stampede to the door to see who could get out first it was almost at the end it was pretty much a run on the bank
0: yeah so sad and i'm just wondering too looking back and you were saying that this is the firm and the way you were selling it was this is the firm that you had dreamed you could be a part of after law school i don't want to be cynical but is that <laughs> a possibility i mean is is there a firm out there that could satisfy those dreams or fulfill that desire to work in an environment that is built on trust and respect and friendship and and those types of values as opposed
1: to isn't it frightening to imagine a business operating like that (laughs) um so, so i think that the short answer is you have a much better shot if you're a boutique uh if you're building off the vision of a dreamer uh, and everyone who's recruited buys into it, as opposed to going into a monolith that's been existent forever. So I had the opportunity when I, when I came to Toronto in 1989 to, to experiment, really. And I considered that I was not only opening an, an office, which, of course, I had no experience. That, didn't even know what I was doing. But it was a chance to engage in my early 30s in what I call the social experiment which was let's try this and see how it works, That which became ultimately the, uh, the the mantra for my career. Let's try this and see how it works. And over time, that turned into a philosophy. And and the one thing I discovered, because at the beginning, let's face it, I wasn't kidding a lot of people when I made that speech in my, you know, I, I couldn't have been more than 35 speaking to mid-50s lawyers and explaining to them why this career move was going to be the greatest of their, of their lives, and they were finally going to be happy. Uh, I think half of them uh, left the meetings and laughed. But the, the one thing I discovered was uh, in those recruiting meetings, I, I'd see one of two reactions in the eyes of the lawyers I was talking to, uh, one of which was fear. I could see they were actually afraid of taking this chance, of taking a risk. And I knew there was never going to be a second meeting. And then there was a second group of lawyers who I'd meet with, and I could see they were actually excited, in some respects shocked, because I don't think anybody ever walked in expecting, expecting that. And they were kind of shocked and excited about it. And I knew there would be second meetings, and I knew I could convince them. And ultimately, uh, the, the myth that I was, that I was selling became true, and people bought into it, and that's what they wanted, uh, to the point where, where, when we were trying to finally fill out our securities group and i was looking for a for a leader uh this was now uh a good a good uh, 20 years of uh, uh, being in toronto and the the one thing that i heard from the from the gentlemen who we were recruiting and, and and rushing hard was i made the decision to come here for one reason only and that is it doesn't matter who i've spoken to and what office they come from they are all telling me the exact same story about your firm. So this cultural mythology had been so inbred in everyone from the you know from from our campus recruiting through to our partnership meetings. Oh, of course we had our fights and our disagreements over time, uh, but the 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 cultural mythology had been so well created that everyone who was at the firm knew why they were there. And said mm-hmm. the exact same thing about why, so- why someone new should join. And that, you know, that's, re- that's remarkable. You- and you see that in top-rate organizations, like the organizations that are killing it in the world. You you'd speak to their employees. They know what their mission is. And they know what the firm's mission is. And, and-, uh, and it's consistent.
0: Yeah, that consistency, as you say. And as you're talking, I'm wondering how much of it, I mean, certainly there's a lot to be said for the consistency, but I'm also looking back at the different law firms in existence at the same level as, as Hinn and Blakey was at the time. No other firm was operating that way. So how much of it do you think was the novelty of the way the firm um, was structured and you know, all the values that you say were prioritized?
1: It's very funny because I didn't realize it at the time. And it took one of my uh, young associates, and I say young associates because I think I recruited him as a second or third year lawyer. But he was now, had been my partner for many years. And he came to me towards the end and he said, you understand that this cultural imperative is our marketing advantage. And I hadn't really thought about it. but but it was true it was uh, we said it enough we believed it enough we told enough stories to reinforce the mythology and when when we went out it, it, it's it continued to resonate not with everybody I mean, I, I went out to you know, my job was recruitment uh, at high-end recruitment I, I had to find the laterals who would fit and I did that for years and years and years but I could always tell who wasn't coming back for a second meeting so the people who you know the, the lawyers who were out there looking for the firm who was going to pay them the most amount of money was not coming back for a second meeting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that was because you know, part of our mythology is you're going to come here because deliberately you are not going to earn as much money as you could if you go to one of the seven sisters, for example, because okay. you, know, you can't have it all. So make your choice, what's important to you. And if what's important to you is the same thing, that's what's important to us, then you'll fit. But, you know, if making the most amount of money is your prime objective, you know, there are any number of a few firms who will fulfill that for you. And mm-hmm. I still remember there was one one recruitment. Where I really, we really needed a uh, a real estate lawyer uh, to, fill, to fill a slot. And he was considering us and one other firm who's uh, – and I won't mention the name of the other firm. Uh, and we were late to the game. He pretty much made up his mind he was going there. And I said, listen – great firm uh, and i know they're offering you more money and i'm deliberately not so just so you know that but just understand one thing you know don't get sick in your first year if you go there like if anything if anything goes wrong Mm -hmm. you you know what's going to happen to you and uh you know three days later he signed with us
0: (laughs) wow and it's interesting you're talking about recruitment and focusing on lateral hires that too is unusual the the uh, real emphasis on the laterals because it seems like that's where the greatest expansion came from it wasn't from within growing you grew really fast and uh through lateral hires and i'm just wondering why that decision was made or those decisions were made because again that was really quite unusual
1: well you think about it when you when you're it was 1989 when we opened and started recruiting, but in, until we actually developed some momentum in terms of our student recruiting, those students that you're recruiting, apart from anything else, it's, it's, an, it, it's a pyramid. So most of them aren't going to be there at the end. And until they're mature and partners, you're talking about 10 years. Well, how, how are you going to, you know, what are you going to do in the 10-year period you know, be, between your 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 first student hires and when they're going to be partners, or your sec, you know, so you have to go out and find second and third year lawyers to support. Uh, we, you know, our our beginning practice. Remember, we were just four lawyers to start, uh, right. and largely uh, tax and entertainment, uh, a little bit of commercial, and you know, then uh, then we had to figure out how to get a litigation group going. We had to figure out how to get a, a management side employment practice going. Uh, so all of that meant recruiting I, I, you know, to grow it organically it was going to take 20 years mm-hmm. so what well, what happens is when you when you do this for a living and you are successful at it and and and, and understand here you're, you're never going to be exclusively successful you, there are going to be some massive failures and disappointments and things aren't going to go the way you hope they do and Uh, after I become managing partner, which was 1997, a role I was completely unsuited to at the time, because I had no idea how to do it. I never wanted to do it, but there it was thrust on me because my predecessor discovered quite shockingly to all of us that he had cancer. Uh, so I had to, I had to step in. I had to lead. I had to figure out how to lead. And we had this organizational crisis in my first year. Uh, a bit of a scandal that, that we had to work through, but that required me to completely uh, gut the leadership of our commercial group. So it was like a start over. Uh, and so so as, as I say, not every decision you make is going to be right. So the issue right. becomes, you know, uh, in, in the words of, uh, the you know, one of the greatest football coaches of all time, Bill, Bill Walsh, who coached the San Francisco 49ers, it's all about, you know, what did I learn from this failure? So it's about, you know, what did I learn from the hiring mistakes? How quickly did I take care of them? How long did people who clearly didn't fit? Because some people will fool you or you'll reach for some somebody and it turns out they don't fit. How fast do you deal with it? You know, it are, are you tolerating things in your culture that laterals are bringing in uh, that don't fit with your culture? And the longer you tolerate them, the more you begin to breed the kind of contempt and resentment but you know that's going to kill your organization so we were yeah. we were particularly good at being adept at at making those corrections that we needed to make but but that you know that said it took a lot of patience and you know a, a number of not just frustrating days but frustrating years where things just weren't moving uh, at the pace that I had hoped they would move out. And some of my other partners, you know, would come to me from time to time and, and say, listen, if this experiment just isn't working anymore, maybe we should abandon it. So, so it's not all sunshine and roses. And wow, we went, you know, mm-hmm. over 25 years, we, we became an iconic firm. It was about, no, there were years of struggle. Uh, there were days where I had to walk into partners' offices, look them in the eyes and, and say, listen, just trust me, we're going to get there but you know then i go back to my office and shut the door and either have a good laugh or a good cry
0: yeah it's so interesting you mentioned that you had no experience or sort of management training when you took on the role of co-managing partner and yet one of the reasons that is often referred to as being a contributing factor to the demise of the firm was that the new leaders that took over after you stepped down had no training and they were really inexperienced. So I'm wondering about, you know, what can we learn from that to pass on to today's law firm leaders and managers?
1: The problem with with most lawyers is that they believe they're good at everything, (laughs) including things they're not particularly good at. So, you know, how many times and I'm talking to the lawyers out there who might be listening, you know, how many lawyers out there believe they can market better than their marketing department? Uh, or that they understand how, how the financial statements of the firm should be presented better than their accounting department, or that the chief operating officer, who's not a lawyer, doesn't know anything about lawyers or law firms. I mean, this is the way lawyers think, which is part of the problem. Uh, and the other part of the problem is, for example, uh, the, the general assumption that if you're a great rain, rainmaker, you're a great leader, and therefore you can run an office. Uh, or, whereas the reverse tends to be true, your your best operators are usually your best operators, not not your uh, not your greatest train maker. So the one piece of advice I would say is uh, that I would give is I, I'd, I'd look at virtually every other business on the planet and ask who hires a CEO that has no leadership training or that doesn't know how to run a business, and the only the only place you ever see it is in law where you know, some firms will vote for the next managing partner. How nuts is that? It's kind of like voting for the next president of the United States. I'm just kidding there. But, um, but the reality is, if you're going to run an organization, you need to at least have some training is in terms of how to understand its financial statements, which most lawyers don't, uh, how to manage people, how to lead, uh, things that you can be trained in at places like whether it's uh, uh, Har- Harvard uh, Business Management or the or the director's course or or, or an advanced MBA course. Uh, these are things that I would say how you could allow somebody to lead an organization, particularly a significant one, without having that background is nuts and mm-hmm. short-sighted. Uh, but you you went back to the uh, why didn't we do it? Very good question. And and part, you know, the autopsy will show that's clearly uh, part of what the problem was. The other thing I'd say is I inherited a, a $60 million business uh, with, a, you know, 160 lawyers and just a few offices. And I turned over 25 years later, or sorry, eight, uh, 17 years later a firm that was a quarter of a billion dollar business with 1100 employees on a number of continents. So that's that's a completely different animal. And the notion that you could bring somebody in and hope they could figure it out by the seat of their their pants the way I did when it was a quarter the size, ultimately, it was an error of epic proportions for which we paid dearly. And as much as anybody else, I have to take the blame.
0: Well, I mean, we're not looking to yeah, we're not looking to point fingers at all, Norm, but I'm just, you know, curious to, to think t- in today's world, well, how many firms are led by solely managing partners? There's so many others involved in firms of the size that Heenan was in its heyday. Uh, you know, there's the managers and then there are the leaders. And my understanding is you you really need both in order to succeed. And it's rare that you have both in one person. Um, Or in your case, when you were co-managing with um, the Montreal partner at the time, I think it was Guy Tremblay, was that who? Yes. Yeah. So the two of you, um, you know, leading and managing. And then you had your chair um, as well. So when there were, I guess, points of dissension between the two of you, there was someone that you could go to to help you resolve that dispute. So there were a lot of people in the mix, and I'm I'm wondering today, how do we see that in the sort of the law firm of today of the same at the same level that Heenan was?
1: Hmm. It's uh, as you put it right at the start. You know, there there are a lot of firms. There was a lot of speculation that this might happen elsewhere, but it hasn't happened anywhere. So it's interesting because I had a. A chat with just before we got on this uh, call with a, with a partner in another law firm, a uh, significant enough firm. And she was telling me that despite uh, all the inconsistencies, despite uh, what she sees as the problems holding back the potential growth of the firm uh, and the two other firms where she worked previously, which were, you know, which were significant, significantly large firms, uh, Despite everything that you look at and say, all right, it's completely inconsistent. They don't know what they're doing. They couldn't manage their way out of a paper bag. Yet they're out there. they all—they all seem to be doing economically fine. Uh, but the, the one thing they share in common is a workforce that, generally speaking, is unhappy. Hmm. So, which, which I think is is one thing most lawyers, kind of particularly lawyers in big law, many of them accept. I'm going to earn a lot of money, but I'm never going to be happy. So, and, and the other thing I'd point out is there, there are plenty of lawyers out there running major companies. It's just, they've had leadership training, they've had business experience, and so many lawyers that we throw into the managing partner role have no business experience. So, all I would ask is, why are you doing that? Yeah.
0: Yeah. And focus a little bit more on the, sort of the business of, of law as well as the practice of law.
1: Well, uh, also preparing somebody for the role and making sure that the person who is the next designate isn't taking it over because it's her turn or his turn, but because someone's done the same evaluation that you would do if you, if a board of directors was hiring a CEO, a new CEO, you'd, you'd put them through, apart from anything else, uh, a, a series of tests just to test. Uh, their psychological abilities to lead the degree to which they are empathetic or capable of showing any empathy or whether mm-hmm. they're uh, uh, or, 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 or the degree that they're actually a bit psychopathic, which, you know, some some of the greatest lawyers are the biggest so- sociopaths.
0: Yeah, I've heard that, too doesn't doesn't say very good things about the profession oh my goodness well, it's just
1: it's a it's a, <laughs> like anything else it's a broad profession it has a uh, a broad variation in personality uh but you tend to, and this is the other thing you you tend to attract uh people who kind of share your view of the world so if you're, for example, a firm that thrives on institutional files, uh, for which you, you know you you don't need a lot of personality, you just need to deliver what they they ask for when they ask for it. Those are the kind of people you're going to recruit. Everybody kind of thinks the same way. Nobody, you know, no nobody sees any real discrepancy unless you happen to bring in somebody with a, you know, with a big personality who could be a great client getter and their first feeling from the moment they join the firm is i'm a fish out of water here i just don't fit so Mm -hmm. you think you know that's the kind of lawyer we really you know and they may even say out loud that's the kind of lawyer we really need to drive the future of the firm but you've so institutionalized a whole different type of firm personality that that person could never fit there so you can't change it so you can't change it you don't even see why change is necessary And I would include in, you know, among those firms that are winning awards for diversity and inclusion. Why? Because they set up all the right programs, they say all the right things, you know, but if you compare it to the way they behave every day, it's, you know, they're not behaving that way because apart from anything else, they just don't know how to, and they they can't even see that they're not.
0: Right, right. A couple of things we haven't talked about that I often hear um, you know, referred to when we look at the qualities of, a, of an effective leader are trust and confidence. I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about those and, and you know, their importance in um, sort of leadership development and how that might affect an organization if we don't have confidence uh, that the leader isn't confident and we don't have trust in our, our leaders.
1: Ultimately, the reason we don't have trust in our leaders is because we don't believe them. And the greatest problem leaders problems leaders face is how they deal with and handle conflict, because particularly among lawyers, you're going to see conflict every day. And how you choose to resolve it uh, is, you know, in my book was always a function of, you know, how, how honest can you be about dealing with it? particularly if you tell somebody you're going to do something, uh, are you going to deliver on it? And a lot of leaders, and if, if you speak to a lot of lawyers who are, who have become cynical about it, it's because uh, management or leadership says one thing, but then won't, ca- won't, won't carry it out when, when, mm-hmm. when the time gets tough or when the tough decision has to be made, they won't make it. Mm-hmm. And there's a perception from, and it starts from the ground up. You know, sometimes your your students and your young lawyers will see it even before the partners recognize it, but the inconsistency between again between what you're saying and what you're doing and the only way you can build trust is if you can show people consistently that you are doing what you say you're going to do and in in most cases of what I call poor leadership uh, you know, a, a lot of leaders will just tell people what they think they want to hear uh, but you know, won't then do the heavy lifting to make it happen. And that mm-hmm. you want, you want to destroy trust or, or the flip side of that is you want to build cynicism about your leadership. All you have to do is tell people what you think they want to hear, uh, but not what you're actually going to do. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And then not deliver on it. And yeah. and, and, and the other
1: thing is, <laughs> you know, you're, you know, particularly the leadership is a very lonely place uh, and it's not necessarily about making friends so much as it is about you know building your trust group and then radiating that out the other thing is and i think everybody needs to recognize uh any organization that's built around a single leader uh, is going to have a problem apart from anything else with succession and you know if you're going to build good leadership everyone in the organization needs to understand that in some respects they are a leader and everybody's watching what they're doing and what they're saying and because they have responsibility for somebody else that they need to look after. And the more you can radiate out that leadership and share it more and make more people responsible, uh, you know, for the future of the organization and its decision-making, uh, you know, the stronger your organization is going to be. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's like, it reminds me of sort of the West jet model, um, you know, when yeah. all, you know, yeah, almost a so sure of a shareholder in the company Yeah. Um, yeah, and I was just thinking too, sort of again, with the sort of benefit of hindsight, were there any warning signs from your perspective? Um, you know, whether it was years before, like could you sort of see it coming? Like I obviously not at the time, but I mean now that we look back on it.
1: Oh no, we could see it coming at the time, the six months before the no, eight months before we actually made the decision to dissolve. I was remember I was back to being an ordinary partner and uh, one of my partners in the Toronto office called me and said, listen, our lead partner in Calgary has just resigned to go to McCarthy's. And my, my gut reaction before I had even thought of it is okay, the firm's over. Um, so yeah, there were, there were plenty of warning signs as much as eight months before and lots of rumors on the street and, you know, everything, you know, once you're, once you're in a bad spot, everything Reads, every every bad thing breeds the next bad thing. Uh, right. And the other thing that you come to understand uh, when you live through uh, a highly uh, difficult business collapse, and I used to see it with my clients, is that you're, un- you're everyone in the business is under an extraordinary amount of stress. And your decision-making when you're under stress is not the same as your decision-making when you're not. Uh, some people just completely shut down. They're unable to make any decisions of any nature the stress is so terrible you, you can't imagine stress levels uh that great to the point where people were uh, months before were simply choosing to work from home and this is before we had before we had any other setup for working at home right. uh, simply because the, you know, a few of them said the, the mere parking my car in the building uh was causing me stress so I just figured, you know what? I'll stay home and work from here. So, um, so it you know it, it's more of a step by step. The real question, you know, in some respects, is was it savable? I, I still believe it was, but it's uh, uh, you know and, uh, for various reasons. And but ultimately, the only the only way it was savable is if everyone who was left at the end, you know, basically signed a pledge to which I asked them to sign, which was, listen, I will stay twelve months, and if at the end of twelve months this isn't working. Uh, you're all free to go, but mm-hmm. you know we, what? We, what you can't have once the run on the banks starts is you know once a week somebody announcing they're leaving. That kills morale as much as anything else. So, so I, I don't. I don't even know how we got to, uh, onto this track. But <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, we're just talking about warning signs and if there were, you know, yeah, the there warning signs. War- so yeah, there were plenty yeah. of
1: warning. No shortage of warning signs.
0: It yeah. didn't
1: just happen in the end. Uh, it, it, the only the only place that w- it was a shock. Uh, was among our bankers, our landlords, and our clients because we you know, kept it pretty well under wraps. And part of the problem was you know, here. We, and, and I did. The, the, I'm speaking as the guy who stepped in in the last three months, believing he could possibly save it, mm-hmm. uh, and, and it took back over the reins of, uh, of running the firm. Uh, came up with a plan to that, that I thought uh, would work. Uh, that it had a number of uh, aspects to it. Um. But you know, we were we were going through all this stress. No, you know, nobody in leadership had sat down with our bankers to tell them what was going on and how we were going to fix it. Like mm. nobody had spoken to our landlords. We had we were paying two million dollars in rent for space we weren't using, and it hadn't occurred to anybody to to have a chat with our landlord saying, "Listen, we need a break." Or you know, and, and as I as I put it when I came up with the the final rescue plan was. Because uh, partners asked, you know, why would our landlords agree agree to this? And I said, well, you know, I'm just going to give them a choice. You can take back the extra floor of space that we need today, or three months from now, you can take back all of it. You know, <laughs> what would you prefer? But th- I think that might be a compelling argument. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you know, the problem was nobody in you know n- nobody in leadership, nobody in management really sat down to analyze what are the business issues. How do we solve it? How do we get out of this? What's the next right.
0: step? Right, right. And from what I understand, it wasn't really—it wasn't financial in the end. There
1: no, was, it wasn't. Yeah. It was, and in fact, um, it, it, the greatest irony in all is: 2013 was just a horrible first half for our commercial group, but we were bidding on two of what were going to be in 2014 the largest transactions. Of the year. In fact, I think they were the two largest transactions of the year. And normally, in those kind of things, you have sort of a one, of chance, one in five chance of winning. Uh, uh, well, as it turned out, we won them both, and one ended up at Baker McKenzie, the under, the other ended up at Osler's. And you know, those two deals alone would have made 2014 uh, probably one of our best years ever. had we all just hung in there and stuck it out.
0: Wow! Yeah. Like you say, incredible irony. So
1: anyway, uh, the, the, you know, Blakey ended up seeding a, a lot of other firms with some really great talent. So, and and of that, you know, I will always be proud just of uh, the quality of the people we were able to not just recruit, but but build and create.
0: Absolutely. I mean, so much to be proud of, Norm. Uh, you know, 40-year run. And still, to this day, people will say it was such a great place to work. and yeah, And that's ultimately
1: yeah. ultimately the, the thing I'm most proud of, because ultimately you, you have to ask yourself, really, are the bricks and mortar as important as people walking around saying, "You know what, that was the best working experience of my life?" and you know what you promised for all those years you actually delivered on. so uh, And if you run into pretty much any of our former employees, that, that is what. That is what they'll say. Absolutely. And, and that, Absolutely. You know, that's part of the legacy. The other part of the legacy is uh, the positive impact that we had on people's lives while they worked there. And, mm-hmm. you know, you can't take that away.
0: No, definitely not. Definitely not. Um, wow. Well, yeah. Great, great tips. Um, and thank you for sharing sort of some of the, sort of the, the inside uh, information about what Led to the demise of the, the unfortunate demise of the firm. Just wondering if there are other sort of tips you might pass on for effective law firm leadership, whether it's things you learned through your experience at Hean and Blakey, or now I understand you're consulting um, as well and and talking um, throughout on the the speaking circuit, talking well, about leadership as well.
1: Yeah, I can. It's funny I consult with law firms across the country, and I uh, uh, did a keynote for a. Uh, Uh, for a firm out of the U.S., uh, a number of weeks ago. And the the key, again, the keys, they're fairly simple. It's, it's, it begins with consistency. So, you know, if you say you're a teamwork firm, then how can you have a compensation system that dissects who's brought in the file and who's getting this credit and who's getting that credit, who the billing lawyer is, these kind of things? It's as, as an industry, you know, you can't have it both ways. It's, I mean, it's fine. If again, if if it's if your firm is based on uh, maximize profits, let's earn as much as we can as fast as we can so we can retire. Then I get it. But if you're uh, no part of part of this is respect and quality of life, which everybody says, and teamwork, then take a look at how you're compensating people. Take a look at how your billing systems are created part of the problem is I think particularly the bigger firms are, are just so monolithic and they've been doing it for so many years and they're being run by people, uh, who, who have no sense of, you know, what the modern world is because you know, they've been doing it for 35 or 40 years, sure. uh, that, 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 they're simply unable to change. But if you, but if you are a boutique and you have the opportunity to, to do it your way, uh, you know, give thought to those kinds of things, and, you know, uh, I, I did. You know, we tried experiments at our firm where uh, we eliminated the billing lawyer in a couple of departments, uh, and I we started it in in uh, in mine just to show that it actually could be done. So we had I created a lawyer called uh, calling uh, called Entertainment Associate, and the Entertainment Associate was the biggest biller in the entire firm, and none of the partners sent their own bills. They are. They were all sent by this associate. Why? Because ultimately we trusted that the system of compensation would work in the end. And what we saw uh, within about a year of instituting this was our litigators came to me and said, listen, we want to do the same thing in our department because we we believe it will foster much more of a teamwork approach. And particularly on the major litigation files, they they were huge files required a combination of partners to put everything else aside in order to work on these files. So they had to feel comfortable that the firm was going to value that. And the best way to do that was to say, okay, you know, we're, we're just getting rid of all that. And anecdotally, everybody knows who's brought in a file or if, or if four partners need to work as a team to bring in a, a file rather than have this huge debate and negotiation as, okay, this will be your credit. This will be my credit. This will be her credit. Uh, you, you're all okay with that. And, Most of them, you know, the ones with less leverage will grumblingly say, okay, and be Mm -hmm. resentful. So instead of that, it's sort of a trust. Okay, you know, we trust the system uh, will work itself out. But then, and this gets back to our trust, you better be darn sure, uh, you know, that your system in the end reflects it and that everybody walks away, as I always like to say, just a little bit unhappy with their compensation. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the other thing about lawyers is, if they're happy with their compensation, uh, they're earning too much. So,
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I mean, do you think we're ever going to do away with the billable hour?
1: No, not really. Yeah, Uh, in some ends of the, in some ends, at some industries, the answer is yes. It's already happening. But will big big law do it? No, it's way too fruitful at the top ends.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and like you say, so entrenched, and things to change in the legal industry is just so slow.
1: Well, I can uh, remember being out <laughs> being out on a pitch. We were trying to pitch, um, and this was to uh, an Ontario utility, and I, and like we we I figured we they they brought me in uh, just to to help design the pitch, and we knew we were really just a stalking horse. I said, "Well, if we're stocking horse, we might as well come in with something so completely off the wall uh, that no, nobody else will be competing." So we so we 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 drafted up the pitch, and and the approach we were taking is uh, we want to see this as uh, in, instead of you worrying about how many billable hours we have and having to worry how to monitor it, uh, we're just going to come in and do a flat rate. We will agree on a bundle of services, and we will come in at ten percent under. Your last year's budget for all those services. Just give us a number, and we will we will work towards it. We won't even send you a bill. You'll you'll just pay us monthly, and we'll deliver all that bundled services. And if you need other services, and then then we'll we'll do that a la carte. And I figured, I said, here this this is our chance to kind of stand out because ultimately they like there's zero chance uh, that we're going to win this. And uh, ironically, their general counsel came back and said. We're really impressed with your innovation. Uh, but if you're, if you don't mind, just, you know, give us the, because the, the other thing I said is then we'll meet quarterly on a partnership basis and figure out how it's working and make sure everybody believes it's fair and we'll grow the relationship organically. And the general counsel came back and said, listen, would you mind just give us an hourly rate and a discount? <laughs> 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 so, so, it, you know, there's oh, two sides no. to it. <laughs> like the institutional clients. Also, very hard yes. to, to change how they how they look at
0: things. Yeah, yeah. Well, Norm, thank you so much for uh, just such an interesting, lively discussion. I really, really appreciate you taking so much time to speak with me. And just wonder how listeners can learn more about you and all the things that you're doing, which we haven't even touched on. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, if you want to find out about my books, and I've written a couple, and I've got a third one coming. Just go to Norman Bacall. The hardest part of that will be spelling my last name right. Uh, B-A-C-A-L, just one L dot com. And you'll find out everything I'm doing there. I also write murder mysteries. So if you're interested in those and you have time to read, and there aren't too many lawyers who have both, uh, mm-hmm. you'll, you'll find my books there as well. And, uh, and i I, again, uh, as well as my consulting, if you want to check out my other podcasts, you'll find them there. Uh, I'm, I'm just having fun trying to give back.
0: Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And just so many people are benefiting. So thank you for that. Well, thank you again, Norm. It's just such a light speaking with you.
1: All right. My pleasure, Shelley. Thank you. Have a great day.
0: Thanks. You too. Thanks for joining me today on the XL Legal Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I'm always looking for topic and guest ideas. So if you have any suggestions for future episodes, I'd love to hear from you at xllegal.com. That's exell.egal.com dot